Welcome back to the Josh Scanlon Podcast, episode 108, I believe, and it's November 3rd, 2018, and this is going to be part two of our uh, discussion, our reading from the Sugar Conspiracy article from uh, 2016 by a man named Ian Leslie, and I'm a huge fan of this uh, article, and you should be too. Uh, so we're going to read from, we're going to start back on part two. If you haven't heard part one, please go back and listen. Actually, while we're uh, while I was taking a break and another cup of coffee, actually, I went and I just did some research on Ansel Keys just real quick on Wikipedia. Nothing huge, but because uh, Ansel Keys, actually, in my opinion, is horrifically responsible for the uh, for the obesity that we're finding in the United States across the board. And I I don't know if this has anything to do with the increase in uh, in allergies and I mean just I don't know I, I don't know. Uh, but the facts are we have an obese society for sure. And it's attributed to diet more than set being set at sedentary, which sitting on your butt and playing video games. It's a diet, man. It's a diet. So you can, I mean, you just, you can exercise all day long, but if your diet is bad, the exercise, it's not bad for you. No one's going to say exercise is bad, but it's the diet that drives everything for sure. But it's interesting about key. So, uh, he, uh, so he was born in Colorado Springs uh, his family moved to San Francisco and right before the earthquake and after the disaster, they relocated to Berkeley uh, where Ansel Keys grew up. Now, remember, Ansel Keys is the proponent of the anti-fat study that says be, don't uh, do cholesterol whatsoever. And remember, Dwight Eisenhower had a heart attack in 1955 and his doctors told the world, uh, well, the U.S., but says give up cholesterol, don't smoke. And that's what Eisenhower did. I don't know if he smoked, but he gave up cholesterol and anything with high fats. And then he uh, subsequently died of a heart attack in 1969. Uh, and his doctor was using the research of Ansel Keys as a, as a reason for his recommendation for Dwight Eisenhower to uh, to get his heart back in shape because Ansel Keys is research. And since then, it's basically a three headed monster. You had Eisenhower. Eisenhower's doctor, Dr. Dudley, and then Ansel Keys were really the advocates and just, you know, they're just destroying all comers uh, for the high, uh, the low fat intake of your diet, which has since led to this uh, epidemic of obesity without question. All right. Uh, but it's interesting. So Keys is actually an interesting guy. Um, and so uh, he was identified in high school as intellectually gifted. During his youth, though, he left high school to pursue odd jobs such as shoveling bat guano in Arizona, a powdery, a powder monkey in a Colorado mine. Uh, he worked in a lumber camp and as a crew member on a ship to China. That's pretty interesting. Uh, he eventually finished his secondary education and was admitted to California, Berkeley, uh, where he initially studied chemistry, but was dissatisfied and took some time off to work as an oiler aboard the SS President Wilson, which traveled to China. He then returned to Berkeley, switched majors, and graduated with a BA, BA in economics and political science and a master's in zoology. All right, so his main background is, uh, is politics. Uh, for a brief time, he took a job as a management trainee at Woolworths, but returned to his studies uh, at Scripps Institution, uh, Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla, uh, in 1930, he received his Ph.D. in oceanog oceanography and biology from Berkeley. He was then awarded the Natural National Research Council Fellowship that took him to Copenhagen to study under August Krogh at the Zoology Laboratory for two years. During his studies with Krogh, he finished fish physiology and combined contributed numerous papers on the, stub on the subject of fish, fish 
physiology. Okay. Once his fellowship en ended, he went to Cambridge, but took some time off to teach at Harvard, after which he returned to Cambridge and earned a second PhD in physiology. The interesting thing here, though, is uh, he is the, uh, the he's the reason we have K-rations. In 1936, Keyes was offered a position at the Mayo Foundation, where he continued to study physiology. He left after a year, citing an intellectually stifling environment where research was secondary to clinical doc business and playing bridge. Isn't that interesting? So he's complaining of intellectually stifling, and yet he was doing the same thing to our man, John Yudkin, a hero in our story. In 1937, he left the Mayo Foundation to teach physiology at Minnesota, where he founded the Laboratory of Physiological Hygiene. His earlier research on human physiology eventually led to an assignment with the Army Quartermaster Corps, where they worked to develop a more portable and non-perishable ration that would provide enough calories to sustain soldiers in the field for up to two weeks. Uh, the development did not begin without some turbulence. His colleague, uh, Dr. Ellsworth Buskirk, says, quote, when it appeared that the U.S. would be in World War II, Keyes went to the Quartermaster Food and Container Institute in Chicago to inquire about emergency rations. The story goes that he was told to go home and leave such things to the professionals. Undissuaded, he went to William Wrigley's office and secured 10000 for the development of emergency ration. Then he went to the Cracker Jack Company. They couldn't supply the money, but did provide the watertight small box concept. The result was a uh, K-ration in, in sealed Cracker Jack boxes. Man, that's pretty interesting. Uh, there's no evidence that the K-ration necessarily is uh, devoted to keys, but you know that's the... Uh, that's what we think. So anyway, let's go back to the Arthur. That's pretty interesting. Oh, it sounds like an interesting guy, actually. I mean, my goodness, going on a, a, an oil to China. But at the end of the day, I just chuckled at the he uh, left the Mayo Institute because of stifling uh, intellect. And yet that was he was doing. All right. So here we go. Part two of the Ian Leslie, uh, the sugar conspiracy article. In a series of densely argued uh, articles and books, including Why We Get Fat in 2010, the science writer Gary Tobbs has assembled a critique of contemporary nutrition science, power, powerful enough to compel the field to listen. Now, remember, going back to the first episode here, we talked about what uh, Max Planck had mentioned, that basically science isn't <laughs> to change people's opinions. You're not going to get people to see the light. The older opinions makers are going to have to die off. That's what uh, Max Planck said, and uh, and we actually have studies that confirm that. Absolutely, the truth of Planck's maxim. So now Gary Tobbs comes around in 2010, where Ansel Keys and many of his uh, junior proponents are essentially dead, and so the now the field has been left more wide open to a different, basically unorthodox opinion, blasphemy, if you will. Um, if you look at from the, the Ansel Keys perspective, but because Ansel Keys is dead and many of his proponents are as well, uh, there are new people coming to the mainstream. In this case, Gary Topps, uh, who have uh, who can who have enough chops and wish to say, "Hey, there's a different side to this," and it just opens up a different lane, you know, lane for other people to think differently and still maintain their street cred in the business, so to speak. Anyway. Uh, one of his uh, one of Tobbs's contributions has been to dis uncover a body of research conducted by German and Austrian scientists before the Second World War, which had been overlooked by the Americans who reinvented the field in the 1950s, i.e. Ansel Keys, Dwight Eisenhower and Dr. Dudley. The Europeans were practicing physicians and experts in the meta metabolic system. 
The Americans were more likely to be epidemiologists laboring in relative ignorance of biochemistry and endocrinology, the study of hormones. This led to some of the foundational mistakes of modern nutrition. And don't forget, uh, Ansel Keys had a BA in economics and political science. And he has a PhD in physiology, but that's uh, his initial thing was studying of fish physiology. Just again, okay. The rise and slow fall of cholesterol's infamy is a case in point. After it was discovered inside the arteries, uh, arteries of men who had suffered heart attacks, public health officials advised by scientists put eggs whose yolks are rich in cholesterol on the danger list. But it's a biological error to confuse what a person puts in their mouth with what it becomes after it is swallowed. The human body, far from being a passive vessel for whatever we choose to fill it with, is a busy chemical plant, transforming and redistributing the energy it receives. Its governing principle is homostasis, stasis, or the maintenance or maintenance of energy equilibrium. When exercise heats up, sweat cools us down. Cholesterol present in all of our cells is created by the liver. Biochemists had long known that the more cholesterol you eat, the less your liver produces. So cholesterol is created by the liver. You eat more cholesterol, the less your liver produces. Unsurprisingly, then, repeated attempts to prove a correlation between dietary cholesterol and blood cholesterol have failed. For the vast majority of people, eating two or three or 25 eggs a day does not significantly raise cholesterol levels. One of the most nutrient-dense, versatile, and delicious foods we have foods are eggs, and we have needlessly stigmatized them. The health authorities have spent the last few years slowly backing away from this mistake, presumably in the hope that if no sudden movements are made, nobody will notice. In a sense, they have succeeded. A survey carried out in 2014 by Credit Suisse found that 54% of U.S. doctors believe that dietary cholesterol raises blood cholesterol. To his credit, Ansel Keys realized early that dietary cholesterol was not a problem. But in order to sustain his assertion that cholesterol causes heart attacks, he needed to identify the a an agent that raises his blood, uh, raises its levels in the blood, basically raising blood cholesterol. And he landed on saturated fats. So again, he realizes that you can eat 25 eggs a day. It's not going to raise your cholesterol because your body is your liver will not produce anything because you're getting enough inside you. But then so he realized that dietary what you eat, i.e. eggs and cholesterol is not a problem. But what it is, is what is raising your blood cholesterol is what Ansel Keys would say would be saturated fats. And the 30 years after Eisenhower's heart attack, trial after trial fade to conclusively bear out the association he claimed to have identified in the seven country study. The nutritional establishment wasn't greatly discomforted by the absence of a definitive proof. But in 1993, it found it couldn't evade another criticism. While a low-fat diet had been recommended to women, it never tested on them, a fact that is astonishing only if you are not a nutrition scientist. So they recommended a low-fat diet to women, but they never made a test on women. The National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute decided to go all in commissioning the largest controlled trial of diets ever undertaken. <laughs> as well as addressing the other half of the population, the Women's Health Initiative was expected to obliterate any lingering doubts about the ill effects of fat. 
It did nothing of the sort. At the end of the trial, it was found that women on the low-fat diet were no less likely than the control group to contract cancer or heart disease. This caused much consternation. The principal's researcher, unwilling to accept the implication of his own findings, remarked, we are scratching our heads over some of these results. A consensus quickly formed that the study, meticulously planned and lavishly funded, overseen by impressively credentialed researchers, must have been flawed so much as to be meaningless. <laughs> the, the field moved on, or rather it did not. <laughs> In 2008, researchers from Oxford undertook a European-wide study of the causes of heart disease. Its data shows an inverse correlation between saturated fat and heart disease. Across the continent, France, the country with the highest intake of saturated fat, has the lowest rate of heart disease. Ukraine, the country with the lowest intake of saturated fat, has the highest. When the British obesity researcher Zoe Harcombe performed an analysis of the data on cholesterol levels in 192 countries around the world, she found out that lower cholesterol correlated with higher rates of death from heart disease. In the last 10 years, a theory that had somehow held up unsupported for nearly 50 years has been rejected by comprehensive evidence reviews, even though it staggers on zombie-like in our dietary guidelines and medical advice. The UN's Food and Agriculture Organization in a 2008 ana analysis of all studies of the low-fat diet found no probable or convincing evidence that a high level of dietary fat causes heart disease or cancer. Another landmark review published in 2010 in the American Society for Nutrition, authored by, among others, Ronald Cross, a highly respected researcher and physician at the University of California stated, there's no significant evidence for concluding that dietary saturated fat is associated with increased risk of coronary heart disease or cardiovascular disease. Many nutritionists refuse to accept these conclusions. The journal that published Cross's review, wary of outrage among its readers, prefaced it with a rebuttal by a former right-hand man of da-da-da and sell keys which implied that since Cross's findings contradicted every national international dietary recommendation, they must be fought. <laughs> the circular logic is symptomatic of a field with an unusually high propensity for ignoring evidence that does not fit its wisdom. So basically, the rebuttal to uh, Cross's uh, study that says saturated fat does not cause coronary heart disease or cardiovascular disease, the rebuttal is, well, your study must be flawed because all the international and national dietary recommendations throughout the world say it does. Okay, but why do they say it does? Because they were using flawed research to begin with. Uh, Gary Tobbs is a physicist by background. In physics, he told me, you look for the anomalous result. Then you have something to explain. In nutrition, the game is to confirm what you and your predecessors have already believed. As one nutritionist explained to Nina Teichholz with delicate understatement, scientists believe that saturated fat is bad for you, and there's a good deal of reluctance toward accepting evidence to the contrary. When obesity started to, uh, started to become recognized as a problem in Western societies, it was blamed on saturated fats. It's not difficult to persuade the public that if we eat fat, we will be fat. This is a trick of the language. We call an overweight person fat. We don't describe a person with a muscular body, though, as pro proteiny. The scientific rationale was also pleasingly simple. 
A gram of fat has twice as much calories as a gram of protein or carbohydrate. And we can all grasp the idea that if a person takes in more calories than he expends in physical activity, the surplus ends up as fat. But simple does not mean correct. It's difficult to square this theory with the dramatic rise. Let me make sure I'm still, yep. With the dramatic rise in obesity since 1980. In America, average calorific intake increased by just a sixth over that period. In the UK, it actually fell. So in the UK, over the last 40 years or 50 years, they're eating less calories. In America, we just increased it by a sixth, not a huge amount. There has been no commensurate decline in physical activity in either country either. In the UK, exercise levels have increased over the last 20 years. Obesity is a problem in some of the poorest parts of the world, even among communities in which food is scarce. Controlled trials have repeatedly failed to show that people lose weight on low-fat or low-calorie diets over the long term. Those pre-war European researchers would have regarded the idea that obesity results from excess calories as laughably simplistic. Biochemists are more likely to think of obesity as a hormonal disorder triggered by the kinds of foods we started eating a lot more when we cut back on fat easily digestible starches and sugars. In his book, Always Hungry, David Ludwig, an endocrinologist and professor of pediatrics at Harvard, calls this insulin carbohydrate model of obesity. According to this model, an excess of the refined carbohydrates interferes with a self-balancing equilibrium of the metabolic system. Far from being an inner dumping ground for excess calories, fat tissues operates as a reserve energy supply for the body. Its calories are called upon when glucose is running low, that is between meals or during fasts and famines. Fat takes instruction from insulin, the hormone responsible for regulating blood sugar. Refined carbohydrates break down at a speed into glu- at speed into glucose into the blood, prompting the pancreas to produce insulin. When insulin levels rise, fat tissue gets a signal to suck energy out of the blood and to stop releasing it. So when insulin stays high for unnaturally long periods of time, a person gains weight, gets hungrier, and feels fatigued. Then we blame them for fat, for being fat. But as Gary Tobbs puts it, obese people are not fat because they're overeating or sedentary. They're overeating and sedentary because they're fat and getting fatter, and that's making them more tired. Ludley makes clear, as Tobbs does, that this is not a new theory. John Yudkin would have recognized it, but an old one that has been galvanized by new evidence. What is not mentioned is the role the supporters of the fat hypothesis have played historically in demolishing the credibility of those who propose it. In 1972, the same year Yudkin, John Yudkin, our hero, published Pure White and Deadly, a Cornell-trained cardiologist named Robert Atkins published the Dr. Atkins Diet Revolution. Their arguments shared a premise that carbohydrates are more dangerous to our health than fat, though they differed in particulars. Yudkin focused on the evils of one carbohydrate in particular and didn't explicitly recommend a high-fat diet. Atkins argued that a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet was the only viable route to weight loss. Perhaps the most important difference between the books was tone. Yudkin's was cool, polite, and reasonable, which reflected his temperament. He's also an Englishman. And the fact that he saw himself as a scientist first and a clinician second. Atkins, resolutely a practitioner rather than an academic, was unbound by gentlemanly conventions. He he declared himself furious that he'd been duped by medical scientists. 
Unsurprisingly, this attack enraged the nutritional establishment, uh, which hit back hard. Atkins was Atkins was labeled a fraud, a quack. His diet was a fad, and it was a successful campaign. As even today, Atkins' names brings a uh, brings with it the odor of quackery. A fad, quote unquote, implies something newfangled. But low carb, high fat diets have been popular for well over a century before Atkins and were, until the 1960s, a method for weight loss endorsed by mainstream science. By the start of the 1970s, that had changed. Researchers interested in the effects of sugar and complex carbohydrates on obesity only had to look at what happened to the most senior nutritionist in the UK, John Yudkin, to see that pursuing such a line of inquiry was a terrible career move. Yudkin's scientific research, their reputation had all been sunk. He found himself uninvited from international conferences on nutrition. Research journals refused his papers. He was talked about by fellow scientists as an eccentric, a lone obsessive. Eventually, he became a scare story. Sheldon Reiser, one of the few researchers to continue working on the effects of refined carbohydrates and sugars throughout the 70s, told Gary Tobbs, in 2011, that Yudkin was so discredited, discredited, he was ridiculed in such a way, and anyone who said something bad about sucrose, sugar, they'd say, oh, you're just like Yudkin, essentially, you're an idiot, or you're an eccentric, you're a quack. If Yudkin was ridiculed, Atkins was a hate figure. Only in the last few years has it become acceptable to study the effects of Atkins-type diets. In 2014, a trial funded by the U.S. National Institutes of Health, remember the NIH was predominantly staffed with uh, Ansel Keys uh, followers, for sure, for many, many, many years. And again, going back to the Max Planck theorem, once those guys die off, it opens up a new thought process, which is what's going on. So the NIH allowed itself now to have some other opinions. All right, so the study funded, uh, trial funded by the NIH, National Institute of Health, 150 men and women were assigned to diet for one year with limited, excuse me, which limited either the amount of fat or carbs they could eat, but not the calories. By the end of the year, the people on the low carb, high fat diet had lost eight pounds more on average than the low fat group. They're also more likely to lose weight from fat tissue. The low fat group lost some weight too, but it came from the muscles. So high carbs, low fat, you lost your, you lost a little bit of weight. You lost eight uh, less pounds than the high fat, low carb, and your weight came, your weight loss came from muscle. High fat, low carb, you lost eight more pounds than the uh, low fat, high carb, uh, and your weight loss came from fat, not from muscle. The NIH study is the latest of more than 50 similar studies, which together should suggest that low carb diets are better than low fat diets for achieving weight loss and controlling type 2 diabetes. As a body of evidence, is far from a conclusive, but a consistent as any in the literature. The 2015 edition of the U.S. Dietary Guidelines, they are revised every five years, makes no reference to any of this new research because the scientists who advise the committee, the most eminent and well-connected nutritionists in the country, neglected to include a discussion on it in the report. They're hiding the science from the general public. It is a gaping omission. Inexplicable in scientific terms, but entirely explicable in terms of the politics of nutrition science. If you are seeking to protect your authority, why draw attention to evidence that seems to contradict the assertions on which that authority is founded? Allow a thread like that to be pulled and the great unraveling might begin. I mean, they're literally, 
the U.S. dietary guidelines are denying the evidence of their contradictory to their own thought process, funded by the government, that you are going to go to bed at night thinking that they are doing what's right for you. It's insane. Last December, the scientists responsible for the report received a humiliating rebuke from rebuke from Congress. Uh, the report being the U.S. dietary guidelines that did not allow counter evidence to be looked at, and so Congress rebuked them. Which passed a measure proposing a review of the way the advice informing the guidelines is compiled. It referred to questions about the scientific integrity of the process. The scientists reacted angrily, accusing the politicians of being enthralled to the meat and dairy industries. <laughs> Given how much of how many of the scientists depend on research funding from food and pharmaceutical companies, this could be characterized as audacious. Some scientists agree with the politicians. David McCarran, a research association at the University of California, Davis, told the Washington Post, there was a lot of stuff in the guidelines that was right 40 years ago, but it has been disproved now. Unfortunately, sometimes the scientific community doesn't like to backtrack. You think? Stephen Neeson, uh, chairman of the cardiovascular medicine at Cleveland Clinic, was blunter, calling the new guidelines an evidence-free zone. So remember, the new dietary guidelines, which are revised every five years in 2015, um, are they don't take counter evidence about the, uh, what studies have shown from the NIH, National Institute of Health. Now, it's a quackery guy. And uh, the chairman of cardiovascular medicine at the Cleveland Clinic says the new U.S. guidelines from 2015 are evidence-free zone. It'll be interesting to see what they say in 2020. The congressional review has come about partly because of Nina Teicholz. Since her book was published in 2014, she has become an advocate for better dietary guidelines. She is on the board of the Nutrition Coalition, a body funded by philanthropists John and Laura Arnold, the stated purpose of which is to help ensure that nutritional policy is grounded in good science, which absolutely is not now. In September last year, she wrote an article for the BMJ, formerly the British Medical Journal, which makes a case for the inadequacy of scientific advice that underpins the dietary guidelines. The response of the nutrition establishment was ferocious. 173 scientists, some of whom were on the advisory panel and many of whom whose work had been criticized by in Teichel's book, signed a letter to the BMJ, formerly the British Medical Journal, again, demanding it retract the piece. Publishing a rejoinder to an article is one thing. Requesting its erasure is another, conventionally reserved for cases involving fraudulent data. As a consultant oncologist for the NHS, Natural Health Service, in the in UK, uh, Santhanum Sunder pointed out in response to the letter on the BMJ website, Scientific discussion helps to advance scientists. Calls for retraction, particularly from those in eminent positions, are unscientific and frankly disturbing. <sighs> the response of the nutrition authorities, 173 scientists, my friends, wanted not just the letter to be uh, sent or uh, uh, retracted, but they want it erased as if it didn't exist. Stalinistic. And a consultant oncologist for the NHS, National Health Services, says calls for retraction, erasure, particularly from those in eminent positions, are unscientific and frankly disturbing, especially the fact there is no evidence whatsoever of fraudulent data being used to write the article. The letter, which calls for its erasure, 
list 10 errors on which close, which on close reading turn out to range from trivial to entirely specious, specious. I spoke to several of the scientists who signed the letter. This is going to this is Ian Leslie now. They were happy to condemn the article in general terms, but when I asked them to name just one of the supposed errors in it, not one of them was able to. One admitted that he hadn't read the, uh, the article that uh, Nina had written, <laughs> but he condemned it and wanted not just retracted, but erased. Another told me she had signed the letter because the BMJ would not have published an article that was not peer-reviewed, but it was peer-reviewed. So one lady is saying she signed it because the, the BMJ shouldn't write publish articles that aren't peer reviewed, but the letter was the article was peer reviewed. Another said they shouldn't sign it because it had all the errors in it, and then he admitted, but he didn't read it at all. But what the hell? Meyer Stanford, a Harvard epidemiologist, asserted that Teichel's work is riddled with errors, but he declined to discuss them with Ian Leslie, the guy who writes this article for the Guardian. Reticent as they were to discuss the substance of the piece, the scientists were noticeably keener to comment on his author, said the author. They did not want to discuss the errors, but they wanted to tackle Nina as a person. I was frequently, insistently reminded that Teicholz is a journalist and not a scientist, and that she had a book to sell, as if this settled the argument. David Katz of Yale, one of the members of the advisory panel and an indefatigable defender of the orthodoxies, told me that Teichel's work reeks of conflict of interest. Of course, he did not specify, old David Katz of Yale, that he is the author of four of his own diet books. Dr. Katz does not pretend that his field has been right on everything. He admitted to changing his own mind, for example, on dietary cholesterol. I guarantee you, only after it is okay to do so. But he returned again and again to the subject of Tychelitz's character. Nina is shockingly unprofessional, he says. I've been in rooms filled with who's who of nutrition. I've never seen such a unanimous revulsion as when Nina Tychelitz's name comes up. She's an animal unlike anything I've seen before. Despite requests, he has seen no, he has cited no examples of her unprofessional behavior. This is what pisses me off. The vitriol poured over Teichel's is rarely dispensed to Gary Tobbs, though they make this fundamentally similar uh, arguments. This is what I want to talk about real quick. This is just me. There's a lady named Judith Curry, who is a climatologist, literally wrote the, bo literally wrote the book on thermodynamics, uh, ocean thermodynamics, and she was at Georgia Tech. She's a skeptic of global warming. All right, let's just put it that way. There are men skeptics of global warming. But Judith is the only one accused of sleeping her way, of whore, literally whoring herself to the top. No one else is except for her, literally, of being a whore to get ahead in science. The men skeptics aren't told that. They're just said they're in thralls of whatever, big oil. I just find it. And these are not just you know crazy people on Twitter. These are Michael Mann, the, the hockey stick guy. His accolades on professional college campuses doing climatology research, saying that Judith Curry, just solely because she disagrees with them, is slutting herself and whoring herself. I, I find that incredibly despicable. And these guys should be ashamed of themselves. They should be held a, a distance from polite society, but they're not. They're put out there for all to see. It's disgusting. The same thing here. This guy says, this guy, uh, Dr. Cass from Yale, friggin' loser, says, 
Nina is an animal unlike anything I've ever seen before. Yet, what does he say about Gary Tobbs? I guarantee he doesn't say that. Freaking scumbag, man. You know, Nina's a daughter. She's a mom. She's a sister of somebody. She's a colleague. You might not agree with her. But to call her that kind of stuff is misogyny and is worst. And these people are scumbags. Oh, it just makes me mad. And I have two daughters, too. The idea that if they told, didn't toe the line from what old Dr. Katz is misogyny, they'd be called an animal like they've never seen before, or that they're slutting or whoring themselves to get ahead. Freaking scumbags. I hate them. I don't, I don't hate them. I hate that stuff. I highly disrespect and despise these people for that. I don't hate them. Because I believe in Jesus, and man, he tells you not to hate, but man, it's hard. In March this year, this is 2016, Teichels was invited to participate in a panel discussion on nutrition science at the National Food Policy Conference in Washington, D.C., only to be promptly disinvited after her fellow panelists made it clear they would not share a platform with her, i.e. deplatforming. And we're seeing this all over college campuses. The organizer replaced her with a CEO of the Alliance for Potato Research and Education. One of the scientists who called the retraction of Nina Teichholz's BMJ article, who requested that our conversation be off the record, complained that the rise of social media has created a problem of authority for nutrition science. Any voice, however mad, can gain ground, he told me. It's a familiar complaint, says Ian Leslie. By opening the gates of publishing to all, the internet has flattened hierarchies everywhere they exist. We no longer live in a world which elites of accredited experts are able to dominate conversations about complex or contested matters. Thank the good Lord. Politicians cannot rely on the aura of office to persuade. Newspapers struggle to assert the superior integrity of their stories. Fake news. It's not clear that this change is overall a boon for the public realm, but in areas whose experts have a track record of getting it wrong, climate change, nutrition science, simple things like just washing your hands before you do surgery, i.e. Ignox Semmelweis from the 1850s. It's hard to see how it could be worse. If there's ever a case that information democracy, even a very messy one, is preferable to an information oligarchy, the information, the history of nutrition advice is it. At least we're open up to a different point of view, which might save your life. In the past, we only had two sources of inter- uh, nutritional authority, our doctor and government officials. It was a system that worked well as long as the doctors and the officials were informed by good science. But what happens if that cannot be relied on? Well, we're seeing the obesity uh, epidemic. The nutritional establishment has proved itself skilled at ad hominem takedowns. But it's harder for them to do to Robert Lustig or Nina Teichels what they did to John Yudkin. Harder, too, to deflect or smother the charge that the promotion of low-fat diets was a 40-year-old fad with disastrous outcome, conceived, authorized, and policed by nutritionists politically engaged. Professor Yudkin retired from his post at Queen Elizabeth College in 1971 to write Pure White and Deadly. The college reneged on a promise to allow him to continue to use its research facilities. It hired a fully committed supporter of the fat hypothesis to replace him. And it was no longer deemed politic, politic to have a prominent opponent of it on the premise. The man who had built the college's nutrition department from scratch was forced to ask for a solicitor, a lawyer, to intervene. 
Eventually, a small room in a separate building was found for Yudkin. When I asked Lustig why he was the first researcher in years to focus on the dangers of sugar, he answered, John Yudkin. They took him down so severely, so severely that no one wanted to attempt it on his own. Ian Leslie, the author of Curious, The Desire to Know and Why Your Future Depend on It. And I'm going to read that book. I just got it because I'm sure if he's writing for the garden, he's a man of the left and I'm not. But, you know, the old left, man, critical thought, questioning authority, that used to be part and parcel for being on the left. And now it's not. It's, it's just not sad. Now, I printed this off in 2016, October. The article was written in uh, April 2016. It had 2,270 comments at that time, my friends, almost 3,000 comments. I want to see how many comments it has now. So I'll post a link in the show notes. Uh, you know, I just, it, it, it breaks your heart how many children are obese. It just breaks your heart how many children have lost their parents, their brothers, because of bad research by politicians, scientists engaging in politics. You got to be skeptical. Everything you hear, you've got to be skeptical. Everything you hear, you've got to challenge. Please, for the love of the good Lord, don't get your info from headline propaganda. I'm telling you, the biggest propagandists are headline writers. We know that for a fact. Open up your eyes. Be open-minded, but not so open-minded that your brains fall out, to quote somebody. I don't know who said that, Mark Twain or something like that. Einstein, I think it was Einstein who said that. Be open-minded, but challenge orthodoxy everywhere you see it. Because your life is at stake, and your life is you only get one. And if you just follow along with the orthodox, the proponents who get rich off this say, you could be risking it as we've seen now with the sugar conspiracy. All right. As always, if you like what you hear, subscribe. Five-star ratings are always appreciated. The YouTube channel is go to just uh, YouTube backslash Heritage Wealth Planning. You can always go to the blog at heritagewealthplanning.com. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.